0: Good morning everyone. My name is Pete, and today we're continuing in our Move series. This is episode four today, and our topic is obedience. Jesus was obedient to God, and to follow him, we should also be obedient. The trouble is, obedience doesn't sound very appealing, does it? Obedience is inconvenient. It's frustrating. In the last year, COVID restrictions have tested our obedience, masks, distancing, QR codes, travel permits, 5k limits, bubbles. Have you been 100% obedient during this whole time? But more than just being inconvenient and frustrating, obedience actually goes against human nature. I'm a school principal, so part of my job satisfaction comes from dealing with disobedience. Last year, I had to ring up Uh, the dad of a boy and tell him that he was suspended The, the kid that is I don't actually suspend the parents and I was being very thorough outlining all of the obnoxious things that the boy had done and the dad I could tell he wasn't really appreciating my thoroughness really and he said to me so what do you expect from my son and I said well I expect him to be obedient and the dad told me you can't expect that that's not appropriate And then I realised that the the conversation was a whole lot more difficult than I'd even anticipated because the dad actually objected to the very idea of obedience, not just the, the disappointment and the frustration of the situation, but the whole concept of obedience. He was basically thinking, why should my kid have to follow your stupid rules? And he said to me, well, if that's the sort of school you are, then I don't think that's the school for us. And I was quite okay with that conclusion. But it's interesting, isn't it, that in our rights-obsessed society, the idea of expecting someone to obey certain rules is actually offensive. And we've certainly seen many Australians railing against authority and protesting in the streets over restrictions and lockdowns. But I have to be very careful at the outset today to clarify something. Today's topic is about obedience to God. Uh, There's a lot more to think about in terms of obedience to civil authorities, religious authorities, community leaders, parents, and whether they should be trusted and followed in all circumstances. But actually, they're topics for another day. Today, we're thinking about being Christ-like and following God's commands in our lives. Let's go back to Angry Dad for a moment, who didn't think the rules were appropriate. Well, He's not the only one. There's a bit of that in all of us. Or, in fact, there's a lot of that in all of us. And it's nothing new, is it? Humanity has a deeply ingrained objection to obedience. If we go all the way back to Genesis 2 and the Garden of Eden, God only had one rule. Don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, you'll surely die. And that was because God wanted people to come to him to discern what was right and wrong, not to take on that authority for ourselves. But there in Genesis 2, the serpent says, really? Did he really say that? That doesn't sound very appropriate. If you ate some of that fruit, you'd be like God. Then you could decide what's good for yourself. And of course, the rest is history. We've been disobedient to God and we've been consistently messing with the planet and with each other ever since and suffering the consequences of our rejection of God's rule. The Bible has a lot to say about obedience and I've actually been having a hard time choosing which bits of the Bible I could fit into the next 20 minutes. There's Old Testament teaching, there's New Testament teaching and I decided, well, let's just do all of it. We should be finished by about... Thursday it's not like you're going anywhere is it Um, (laughs) but seriously just to outline what's happening today I want to briefly outline an Old Testament perspective on obedience then a few key New Testament teachings on obedience and finally some brief thoughts about how we can actually change the habits of our lives so that we can move to become more obedient followers of Christ So that's the shape of today's message Old Testament perspectives, New Testament teachings, and becoming more obedient practically and behaviourally. So, in the Old Testament, a very significant theme throughout is this I will be their God, and they will be my people. In Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 33, it says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts I will be their God, and they will be my people. And there's about 40 verses throughout the New Testament that use similar phrases to this. It's a very strong theme that occurs through centuries of Old Testament literature. And it's the story of a creator God working through his chosen people of Israel to bless the whole of creation. He would rule, his people would follow him, and they would be an example and a blessing to all the world. In Genesis 12, when God calls Abram, he says... All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. When God handed down the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, it's not because he's some sort of cosmic control freak and just wants to boss people around. It's because he's the designer of humankind and he knows what's work be- what works best for us. The law is like an instruction manual for life and those who obey it are wise. So last summer, my son, Josiah, and I had some glider flying lessons, which has been a great experience to share. Um, We're still beginners, but one of the things that you learn pretty early on is the idea of safe flying speed. The instruction manual for the glider we fly says uh, stall speed is at 37 knots and never exceed speed is at 135 knots. So if you go slower than stall speed, you'll drop and if you go faster than the never exceed speed you will stress and fatigue that airframe beyond what it was designed to do if you go out those outside those parameters it might not be immediately fatal but you do need to take corrective action very quickly so you can get back to safe flying speed but between those parameters you can have a great time and it's just exhilarating silent flight through a majestic sky, the views are amazing. You can literally soar with eagles. You can ride air currents. Uh, You can do aerobatics. It's just a, a lovely experience. But of course, outside those parameters, it's potentially deadly. And so it goes with the law. If we think about the Ten Commandments, if you commit murder or adultery, your life will likely spin out of control if you fail to honour your family or fail to rest and worship or fail to put God in his rightful place in your life, your life will develop fatigue cracks and stress fractures that could lead to a total collapse and a catastrophic outcome. So when God gave the law to his people, it was so they could thrive and be his instrument of blessing to the world. If you're standing at the, at the airfield and you see a glider come overhead, your eye is just drawn to it because it really is majestic. And I think that's what God intended for his people, for the eyes of the world to be drawn to these people and just see uh, the right way to live. The Old Testament consistently teaches that the wise will be obedient to God's law. And if we take a swerve for a moment from the Middle East to the Far East, the Chinese philosopher Confucius said, there are three ways to learn wisdom. Reflection is the noblest. Imitation is the easiest. And experience is the bitterest. If we look back to the Old Testament and think about an example uh, from the life of King David, he learnt wisdom in all of these ways. He learnt wisdom through reflection on God's law. In that beautiful Psalm 19, he he looks at the the splendour of the night sky and he thinks about God's perfection and how that relates to the law. And, And he declares, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. So we see that David learnt about the wisdom of obedience through reflection. We can also assume that he learnt through imitation. David's early life was as a shepherd, but in his adolescence, he was an armour bearer in the court of King Saul. He was among the leaders of the nation, and he must have learnt a lot about kingship from that interaction. Similarly, he was mentored by the prophet Samuel, So presumably he learned a lot about wisdom uh, from those around him. But we also know that David learned wisdom through life's experience and the bitter regret of making terrible mistakes. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. He was responsible for the murder of Uriah. And in the aftermath, we see Israel's greatest king, an utterly broken and shattered man, who's learnt the hard way, the grief grief of disobedience. And in fact, generations of his family uh, experience suffering and conflict because of his disobedience. I'm sure we've all learnt life's lessons in these different ways, sometimes through reflecting and meditating on teaching, sometimes through the example of others, of good examples and bad examples. And we've all learnt some stuff the hard way, And some of those lessons have been bitter ones and may even continue to impact us. David's story, like the whole story of God's chosen people in the Old Testament, is a warts and all story of obedience and disobedience. So the plan was for God to be their God and for them to be his people. God certainly kept his promises. His people did not always remain faithful to him. But despite that disobedience, God chose to continue to bless and restore his people. And of course, the ultimate blessing and restoration came through Jesus Christ. So let's turn our attention now to some New Testament perspectives on obedience. The first point I want to make is this. Our hearts are more important than the law. During the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said... Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. What does that mean, to fulfill the law? It means he embodies it, he lives up to it, he illustrates it, illuminates it and magnifies it. So under Mosaic law, for example, adultery is wrong. But Jesus takes it further. In Matthew 5, he says, Whoever looks lustfully at a woman... Has broken the law in his heart. And the people who outwardly kept the law but were actually hypocrites were dealt with absolutely scathingly by Jesus. If you read Matthew 27, it's nearly a whole chapter of him just reaming out the teachers of the law. It's awesome. He calls them whitewashed tombs, looking beautiful on the outside but full of dead bones and rotten flesh. Obedience is not enough if our hearts are not right. And Jesus teaches that true obedience comes out of love. And whilst the Pharisees tried to surpass the law with all their add-ons, all their extra requirements, Jesus actually surpasses the law with love and adds to it, saying in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven to 39, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it, love your neighbour as yourself. Later in the New Testament, some parts of the Old Testament law fall away, whether it be sacrifice, circumcision, food laws, penalties for certain crimes, they become redundant or superseded. Now, to summarise what could be a really in-depth topic of its own... There are essentially three types of law in the Old Testament ceremonial law, civil law, and moral law. Ceremonial laws, like sacrifice, essentially pointed to the coming of Christ. They were a picture of what was to come. So they became redundant after his incarnation, death, and resurrection. Civil laws, that's how you govern the community. They were contextual, they belonged in a time and a place and a culture and were superseded by the New Testament commands of love. But the moral teachings of the Old Testament, such as the Ten Commandments, still apply and Jesus exemplified these teachings in a sinless life that was absolutely consistent with his teaching. The second New Testament perspective on obedience that I'd like to add is this. We have all broken the law. Paul makes it abundantly clear in Romans chapter 3 and verse 10 that we've all been disobedient. There is no one righteous, he says, not even one. In fact, God's law exists not only to bless us by living within it, but also to convict us that we need a Redeemer because we've all broken it. So, today, as we're talking about the importance of obedience, It has to be said that none of us can be in right relationship with God through our obedience. That just needs to be crystal clear. It's only Christ's sacrifice that spares us from the consequences of our disobedience. Okay, a third New Testament perspective on obedience is this. Our obedience is the right response to Jesus. Ultimately, Our obedience to God is not about us complying with rules because we have to. It's about desiring to live rightly because it is a heartfelt response to what Jesus has done for us. For me, one of the most uh, moving and stirring passages in in the Bible is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, literally sweating blood as he anticipates the most cruel of executions that will come the following day. And he prays in Luke 22, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, yours be done. Jesus is the ultimate example of obedience, doing his Father's will, even unto death. And if we understand what Jesus has done for us, we will want to follow him. So when Jesus says in John 14, verse 15, If you love me, follow my commands my response ought to be yes lord i love you and i want to live your way let's move on to our third part today and think about how we can practically change our behaviors so that we can become more christ-like we've all got areas of our lives in which we need to become more obedient And there's so many ways that we might need to become more obedient. And this MOVE series is about just taking steps to become more Christ-like, to become a better disciple. Let's go with the traditional notion of the seven deadly sins for a moment. It's got its roots in biblical teaching. Here's a list of them, uh, using some different words to explain them. Are we obediently ridding our lives of these behaviours? Are any of those risk categories for you? Are all of them? How would we avoid this disobedience and instead live our best life for God and demonstrate the very opposite of that list of sins, virtues instead of vices? There's a list there of the virtues that we would show if we were obediently following christ so instead of just obediently avoiding vices how can we lovingly demonstrate virtues in their place well a simple and well-intentioned answer might be let's just try harder let's just do better the trouble with uh, relying on willpower is that it's proven to not be very effective in behavior change So what is it that determines human behaviour and how might we change it? Well, a very simple formula that was presented by the behavioural psychologist Kurt Lewin claimed that behaviour is a function of the person interacting with their environment, where the person is the identity, history and motivation of the individual and the environment is their physical, social and cultural surrounds. So let's think of an example, and let's just go to the fitness industry for a moment. Someone puts on their brand new active wear, which starts to confirm in their mind that I'm a fitness person. And they go to a personal training class, which motivates, inspires, and challenges them. Now, actually, they could do the whole thing at home in their old trackies, but what they've realized is that it works for them to be the person and to build an identity for themselves and seek out the influences in an environment that's going to make make it happen for them. So they're managing being the person in the environment. Our identity is just so critical to how we behave. For example, let's think about someone who's, uh, who's worked hard to quit smoking. And then they're still tempted, and they're offered a sneaky cigarette by their mate. Now, if their identity is, I'm someone who's trying to give up smoking, they're still in the struggle, aren't they? But if their identity says, I'm a non-smoker because I don't want to die early like my dad did, they have much more power over that moment of temptation. They have redefined the person in Lewin's formula. And this works the same way in our faith walk and the way that it changes our behaviours and our habits. What is your identity? Are you someone who's struggling with anger issues, struggling with financial responsibility, struggling with an addiction of some sort? Is that your identity? Are you in the struggle? Or are you, in your own self-concept, a follower of Jesus, a new creation, his workmanship, created for good works so the question is are you primarily defined by your struggle or by christ's victory your self-concept is going to be a very significant determinant of your choices james clear the author of atomic habits a book i would recommend to everyone says every action you take is a vote for the type of person you wish to become Well, we will cast more votes by our actions in favour of being a disciple of Christ if we love him and have our identity secure in him. Let's move on to think about our environment and how we can actually manage that to change our behaviour to become a better disciple. It's been said that you are the sum of the five people you spend most time with. I'm not sure if I totally agree with that, Uh, And it certainly doesn't have to be that way, but there's no doubt we're all influenced by those who are around us. So if the normalising influences in your life eat unhealthily, it's likely that we will too. If those around us swear, probably so will we. Conversely, if those around us are generous, we're more inclined to be. And if those around us are hardworking, so will we be. Now, this reality has two serious implications for us, two important questions. Do I have good influences around me? And am I a good influence on others? Well, a good way to start moving on greater obedience is to get in the life of some people who are living well and don't wait for them to show up. Get in the path of their life, start imitating the habits of the people who are Christ-like examples. Build them into your environment. And one of the best things you can do to live more obediently is to come to church or life group or youth. Just show up, either in person or online for the time that we've got to do that, but get the good influences around you and you will grow for sure. And we need to think about what's our influence on others. Does my presence in a group raise the bar or lower it? Am I a thermometer or a thermostat? As in, do I respond to the temperature in the room or do I set it? I'm so pleased that I've got friends in my life who will ask me, what am I reading and learning and how am I growing in my faith? They'll ask me how my marriage is, how I'm coping with my work and so on. And Because I have people who care and model Christian discipleship in their own life, They help me overcome the negative tendencies that I would have in my own behaviour. So a right sense of self in a good environment will lead to positive behaviour change. Bad influences lead to vicious cycles. Have you heard that term? It means a mutually reinforcing set of behaviours that bring out the worst in everyone. But good influences lead to virtuous circles mutually reinforcing behaviours that bring out the best in everyone. So there are just a few thoughts about how we can help each other to become more Christ-like, how we can take practical steps to move closer to Christ in our journey of discipleship. So it's good to try to be better, but it's going to be so much more effective if you can actually reframe your identity, your sense of self, and structure your environment to help you be the best that you can be for Jesus. And finally, we do not do this alone. Earlier I mentioned John fourteen fifteen when Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. Let's see what he says next after that. He says, if you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. If we ask for it, the Holy Spirit will help us to grow as disciples. A couple of weeks ago, Anthony was speaking on this very topic of of becoming a disciple and being empowered by the Holy Spirit to do so and he shared a quote from Jonathan Parnell that I'd like to finish with today. A disciple is someone who learns from Jesus to live like him. Someone who because of God's awakening grace, conforms his or her words and ways to the words and ways of Jesus. That's what we want to do. Let's pray. Father God, first, I want to thank you for your law, the truth that points to you and refreshes our soul when we live rightly. But Lord, we know that we've all failed to live obediently, And we can only thank you for sending Jesus to pay for those failures. And we are truly humbled and moved by Jesus' example of obedience, obedience even unto death. And now, Lord, that we've been given a new life and a new hope, may we desire to live wholeheartedly for you, delighting in what you've done for us and the changes that you're making in us. Help us, Lord, to understand ourselves in the light of this truth. And Lord, please bring into our lives the people who will be good examples of obedience and discipleship. And Lord, may we each become a Christ-like influence in the lives of those around us. Amen.